following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I want to focus a little bit more on exploring what I began to talk about last week, which is this ministry of compassion and kindness and mercy that comes from the very heart of God for us and is best reflected uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, In the first message, I pointed out uh, that Ortland's goal in Gentle and Lowly is not just to add one more book that covers the topic of the works of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. Instead, he, he actually is coming at it more from the perspective of wanting to show us what God's heart is for us. Uh, And in saying that, I realized I I want to make a couple points about that statement that could be confusing. The first is that our modern way of thinking about the heart can can mess us up because in our modern notion of heart, we sort of contrast the heart with the head. And so for us, with our mind or our head, we think, and with our heart, we feel or we emote. It's the seat of our emotions. Okay, But that's not how the Bible thinks of heart when it uses the word heart. Um, When the Bible speaks of the heart, it is referring to the core part of who a person is. And it includes our emotions, our feelings, but it also includes our rational mind, our thought, and it even includes what we can in modern language describe as our will, this sense of volition. In, In other words, Our heart motivates everything we do, the choices that we make in life, what gets us out of bed in the morning. All of that is what the Bible would say is your heart, okay? In other words, our heart is at the very center of our personality, and it makes us uniquely who we are. And the question is that you could ask is, why isn't it just simply good enough to know the actions of God on our behalf? just to simply know that he gave us his son on Christmas and that this son grew up to die for our sins? Why do we need to concern ourselves with God's state of mind, of what he feels toward us, that that just feels like it's just more gobbledygook, psychobabble, that that shouldn't really be involved with the gospel story? Um, But here's what I would argue. I think that the truth is all of us obviously know that for the relationships that are most important to us, the heart is everything, actually. It means everything. Let me illustrate it like this. Think about two husbands that decide to give their wives flowers on their anniversary. One husband gives his wife a bouquet of flowers, and on that anniversary, he tells her, being married to you, has been the greatest joy of my life. I know it's been 10 years, but my heart still skips a beat when I see you. That's husband number one. Husband number two shoves the flowers in his wife's face, and he says, you know, I get it. Last year, I forgot, and I didn't hear the end of it for one whole year. So here you go. Happy anniversary, I guess. Let me ask you, 
women especially. Does the heart behind the action matter? Of course it does. I doubt any woman would say, well, as long as I get the flowers, that's all I care about. Um, I think that second guy is going to be in the doghouse for the next year, regardless of whether he gave his wife flowers or not, or, quote, remembered the anniversary this year with an attitude like that. Um, But as I said last week, it's precisely God's heart for us that I think we struggle with and taps into our deepest insecurities about our relationship with God. Because at some level, if we've grown up in church, we've just come to realize that God did give us his son to die for our sins because, well, that's God, and he has to do that because that's the kind of God he is. But when we actually think about our personal relationship with Jesus, I think there's a lot of fears. Because yes, he may have died on the cross for me, but the dirty secret is that for many of us, we suspect that he is actually rather disappointed with us. Maybe even resentful of the countless times that we have failed him. And so when we think about what is God's heart for me, I don't think it necessarily evokes warm feelings for a lot of Christians. But when we look at what the Bible says, it ought to give us a sense of security and comfort when we think about the heart of God for us. In last week's message, I pointed out that when confronted with our sin and rebellion against him, at the center of God's heart, his personality, his character, the essence of who he is, we find compassion and mercy. In other words, our waywardness and our sin ignites God's fierce and jealous love for us. Like a mother determined to save her child from the disease that ravages her. It ignites a passion in God's heart to rescue us from our own sin that is destroying us from the inside. One of the verses that we looked at last week was Hosea 11, verse 7 to 9. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. As I mentioned last week, God is emphasizing how he, unlike us, he is. And the result of that is that unlike us, he will not execute his anger. He will not pour out his wrath, but he will come with a compassion that has been kindled like a fire in his heart for his people. In the face of their stubborn rebellion and their sin, his response is to come with compassion and mercy. It's interesting, God makes the same contrast in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 6 to 9, a passage that we so often take out of context. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This phrase has become like a Christian cliché hasn't it? God's ways are higher than our ways. And the problem is, as Christians, we tend to use that phrase in response to any kind of strange or difficult or mysterious circumstance that we find ourselves in that we can't explain, right? I think this is a great plug for the Understanding the Bible seminar because this is exactly the kind of stuff we try to address. Is this not what this passage is saying? It's not making some blanket statement about God and his mysterious ways. The specific context of this passage, when God says, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, is in relation to his compassion. What God is saying is, when you think in ordinary human terms, this is not a situation in which you would expect mercy. But what God says is, when even the lowest of sinners, when the wicked come and repent and turn from their wicked ways, it says that God will meet them with compassion and mercy. And it's in that setting that God says, don't think that I am like you. Because this is not how you treat one another. When someone crosses you or hurts you, there is no mercy there is there. You can be unbelievably merciless to the people who have harmed you and hurt you. But God says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways. When I am met with that kind of sin, my heart is drawn to that person and wanting to show mercy to them and show them forgiveness and love, not retaliate against them. This is not what we expect in our human relationships. But God says, this is how I am different than you. It is weird to think it like that because we don't think of it that way. But God says, I am far more merciful than you are with the people in your life. What makes God so different in his own self-disclosure is the depth to which he desires good and is willing to forgive even to the very ones who have turned against him. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly says, the message of this book is that we tend to project our natural expectations about who God is unto him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over uh, many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is, quote, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And I, I suspect that as much as all of us want to embrace this message of God's mercy and compassion, um, there is still a side of you that just wonders, Okay, Pastor Steve, I get it. I get it. God is merciful. But isn't that just a half-truth? Like, aren't you only telling part of the story, the part that you want to tell? But because what about God's judgment 
and wrath. I mean, it's right there in the Bible, isn't it? And so are you just softening the message of the Bible and only telling part of it? Well, let me tackle that challenge head on and say, yes, the Bible does talk about God's anger and his wrath and punishment. That's all there in the Bible, and we can't turn our back on that. Uh, in fact, a big part of the Old Testament is God disciplining the nation of Israel because of their waywardness and their refusal to turn back to him. And so he sends them into exile. But this is the point that I want to make. Even in God's judgment and discipline, that has to also be understood under the bigger message of God's love for his people. Otherwise, we distort it. In other words, I'm going to go back to my fundamental premise here and the fundamental premise of Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. His essential character, his natural posture toward us is not one of anger and judgment and punishment, but of compassion and mercy. It's interesting. In Exodus chapter 33, God uh, has a conversation with Moses, and in it, Moses is so bold. And he says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Let me see you, God. And in response, this is what God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 19. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So something interesting is happening here. Moses says, show me your glory. In other words, show me the essence of who you are. And God replies, interestingly, you want to see my glory? I will show you my goodness. And then he connects his goodness with his mercy and his compassion. He says, if you want to know the essence of who I am as your God, the way I will disclose myself to you is through my mercy and by compassion. And so he tells Moses to hide in this cleft of a rock. And he says, you cannot look at my face, otherwise you will die. But when I pass over, I'm going to put my hand over that gap. And then when I walk past you, you can look at my back. And this is what it records in that encounter with God and Moses. In Exodus 34, 6-7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. This encounter with God becomes so important as a self-revelation of God to his people that the prophets will point back to it over and over again through the rest of the Old Testament as being one of the most seminal events in their relationship with their God. And what God says in it, in essence, is this. I will punish the wicked who choose not to repent and return to me. But he says, I take no pleasure in it. This is not at the core. I get, I get no joy out of that. There is nothing in me that relishes my wrath. 
said, what I long to do is to show compassion and love. That's why he says, I am slow to anger. My heart, it takes a lot to get me angry, is what God is saying. He's saying, I can take a lot. Where my heart is, is in compassion and mercy toward my people. Commenting on this, Ortland writes, our deepest instincts accept God to be, is to expect God to be thundering, gavel swinging, judgment relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. Quote, slow to anger. The Hebrew phrase is literally, quote, long of nostrils. Picture an angry bull pawing the ground, breathing loudly, nostrils flared. That would be, so to speak, short-nosed. But the Lord is long-nosed. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his ire. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being, quote, provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is, quote, provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. God is unswervingly just. But what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? If you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing, the impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy. That is the very heart of God toward us. What Ortland is saying is when somebody hurts us, what instinctively pours out of us is anger. That does not require effort. We lash out at people. That's our nature. That's our heart is to judge others. It takes extraordinary effort to show restraint, to show mercy, to show love. We have to be convinced or provoked into compassion. But God is the exact opposite. He says, it takes a lot to provoke my anger. His natural posture is mercy and love. And then look at God's math in that passage. He says that he will punish to the third and fourth generation. But he says, my compassion extends to thousands of generations. Isaiah 54, verse 7 to 8 captures that math well. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In other words, what God is saying is that sin may seem to have the upper hand. 
for a season. But God's pursuing love will eventually win the day, overtaking our sin with his mercy. Eventually, judgment did come to Israel. And God sent the Babylonians to lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy that city and send his people into exile because they refused to turn back to him. And the prophet Jeremiah is standing there in the rubble of his destroyed city, in the burning ash heap of the temple. And even in that unbelievably painful moment, the prophet could utter these words in Lamentations 3, verse 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast us will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That was the confidence that Jeremiah had in his God. Yes, this is an unbelievably painful discipline that God is bringing on us. But he does not do this from his heart. This is not essential to his character. It's crazy to say it like this, but when you read these passages in the Old Testament, you get a sense that God himself is conflicted about this punishment that he pours on. It, 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 we see that language in Hosea. My heart recoils within me. Something very deep in him is being stirred up like a storm. And so even as he punishes his people, he says, I take no joy in this. This is not pleasurable to me. This is not me exacting vengeance with a smile. He's saying, even as I cause you pain, which is a necessary pain to bring you back, you don't understand the pain this causes me. I long, I long to show mercy. I long to show you love. That is where my heart is. Jeremiah 32, verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart. And so he's saying, one day I will restore you. And he's going to say, and then you will know my heart. Because when I do that, there is no conflict in my heart. I do that with joy. I do that wholeheartedly. When that restoration and the better days come, I, you will see the joy of the Lord arise in that because that's where my heart is, to do good to you, to bring good in your life. With great grieving and pain, God punishes his people. But when he shows goodness and mercy, he does so wholeheartedly with great rejoicing. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message. The heart, according to biblical understanding of it, is the essential nature of a person. What consumes a person's thoughts and affects their person emotionally and drives them into action. And what God says is when you look underneath it to the very core of who I am, what you find there is not wrath and anger, but love and mercy and kindness. Ezekiel chapter 33 Verse 11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And so his plea to his people is, turn, turn from your evil ways. 
Why will you die, people of Israel? God is saying it doesn't have to be this way. You can turn to me and live. And no one could understand the depth to which God would back up his words by giving us his only son to come to the earth, to become a person like us, and to die on our behalf for the world that he loves. That's what this Christmas holiday is all about. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's why that prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's no wonder that this child given to us would grow up and end up displaying as an adult the very same kind of heart that we see in the God of the Old Testament our Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowd speaking of Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. He not only cared for their spiritual needs, he even cared about their physical needs and says, my heart is breaking right now because these people are so desperate for my teaching and my healing ministry. But as a result of that, they have not eaten in three days and they're going to pass out if they try to walk home. And he says, I need to do something for these people to feed them. Luke chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. One aspect of a well-ordered and mature heart is the ability to control our emotions rather than being controlled by them, right? But another expression of a mature and well-ordered heart is also to feel deeply for the right things. Listen, it's easy to point at the immaturity of a person who cannot control their emotions, but they're an emotional, chaotic mess. And so they lash out in anger or they're always mired in depression and self-pity and on and on, racked with anxiety. But here's the truth, is that for many of us, we are emotionally stunted. And we cannot feel what we ought to feel in the appropriate circumstances. That too is immaturity. But what is so beautiful recorded in the person of Jesus through these Gospels, is that that Jesus did not have that problem. It's remarkable how many times the Gospel records Jesus getting emotionally moved by the things that he is seeing around him. That actual Greek word is splaknizomai, 
which it has the same word root as the word for a person's intestines or bowels because in Western worldview, we think that our emotions and our, the core of who we are is in our heart. But in the Jewish view, it was the gut, which I think actually makes more sense because I think our gut is more tied to our emotions and all of that than our heart is. It's, it's a very interesting way to describe it. But what in essence it's saying is that when Jesus healed these people and ministered to them, he didn't just do this as an act of duty, but when he would look at this widow who just had to bury her only son and look at these people who are starving in the wilderness because they need his ministry, it literally said that there was something churning in the bowels of Jesus. It, it, it put a pit in his stomach. He actually felt something viscerally that caused him to move into action to help these people. The same God that we see displayed in the Old Testament is now embodied to us in a form that we can actually see in the form of a human being. And what that human being looks like in the person of Jesus is a person that I think wept very readily, whose heart broke all the time when he saw people suffering in pain and the needs that surrounded him, witnessing our brokenness and the pain around him tore him up in the insides and drove him to these acts of kindness and compassion toward us. I'm going to close my sermon here, but I want to ask you this. At one level, this all sounds so great, right? It's a very touchy-feely message. Oh, I'm so glad that God's hand isn't like this at me, but that he's, he's got this heart of love for me, but... Sadly, the Bible says this. The truth is, we don't seem to want that love from God very much. And so even though that is the very essence of who God is, the essence of who we are is to reject that love and to push it away. I've been telling you about this very bizarre journey I've been in the last couple of years of watching Korean dramas. And you think, well, you're Korean. Why, why wouldn't you watch K-dramas? I'm so not like that, okay? Many people think I'm one of the most un-Korean people that they meet, all right? Because I just don't seem to have exhibited much in terms of Korean culture. But for whatever reason, uh, I've gotten down this little wormhole of watching Korean dramas. And the most recent one that I've watched is this one called uh, Hometown. Cha-cha-cha. I have no idea why it's called that, okay? Strangest title of a drama that I've ever heard. Um, And the main storyline follows these ridiculously beautiful people who are on this really slow crash course to a destiny of love. And it's cute. But the truth is, I don't actually find that that interesting. Okay, wow. Two incredibly good-looking people fall in love yay (laughs) but as I was watching this drama there was a a side story that I found actually much more intriguing and interesting and it's another love story between this guy that's called the village chief Uh, he's like a small town mayor or a city councilman a little village, and his wife, who get divorced. And at the start of the story, they're already divorced. They have a young son, and he's confused. 
he doesn't understand why his wife divorced him. And as far as he can tell, the only thing that she told him was he didn't clean up his socks. And he's infuriated by that and frustrated saying, that's the stupidest reason to divorce is because I didn't pick up my socks. What he doesn't understand was the night before she wanted the divorce, he was at a bar drunk and talking with a childhood friend of his, the bar owner. And over that conversation, um, he began to say what he really thought about his marriage to this woman. Because as the story unfolds, it turns out that he actually had what he calls his first love, this girl that's actually much cuter than his wife, who he was hoping to marry. He was romantically totally smitten by. But she ended up moving to another town, and so he lost that chance. And then around that same time, his wife's mother got sick and was dying. And as things happened, they just sort of fell into the marriage. And so he says, I just basically married my friend. I'm not, love, I'm not in love with her. And he says this to his friend. I needed to get married before it was too late. But my first love had moved away. I ended up with a woman I was friends with. That's how marriage is for most people. Her mother had passed away around that time. I felt bad. She was all alone. And that's how we ended up together. And, and all I'm saying is that there isn't much to marriage. There's nothing special about it. It doesn't have some grand meaning. It's, it's, it's just boring. And what he didn't know was that his wife had walked in the rain to fetch him at that bar with an umbrella because she didn't want him to walk home in the rain. And she was standing outside that bar, listening to that entire conversation. And the very next day, she asked him for a divorce. And what she actually, what he actually would discover later in the story is that even in that divorced state, she secretly kept caring for him and loving him and doing these little acts of kindness for him, even if he basically said to her, I don't really love you. I don't really want you as my wife. You cost me my true first love. You cost me the romance I always wanted because that other girl actually ends up moving back to that town. And now suddenly he thinks about what he can have. And I think, you know, the Bible actually tells a similar story. God says, I am here with all of the love that I want to give to you. It is you that pushes me away. It's you that doesn't want my love. I want to read Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1 to 9, and I'll just close with this. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnants 
of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. And they hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. And they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it on its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other, and there is none like me. Let's pray. I think the heartbreak of the story that God tells in the Bible is this, that we have this loving creator who has given everything for us. But what also God is saying is, you have chosen everyone but me. You're living a fantasy. You're thinking that that is where happiness is going to be found. And so you bow to these idols. But these idols are powerless. They promise you everything and they will strip you of everything. They promise you everything, but all they are are dead burdens that you end up having to carry. In contrast to that, God says, I am the one since the day of your birth who will care for you into your old age when your hairs are gray. I am the one who is your true father, the one who has loved you from the beginning. I am the one whose heart breaks for you every time you make a self-destructive decision for yourself. I am the one who weeps every time you're torn up by your own sin. I am the one who can restore you and make you whole. That is the God, heart of God for us. Would you just pray for a couple minutes in response to that love as you think about what we mean when we talk about the Christmas story? That for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Just spend a minute in response to that love and say, God, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I have looked to all of the wrong things to give me a sense of security and identity and affirmation. When you have been there all along, my true lover, even when I wanted a divorce, you were the one that was secretly looking out for me and caring for me, sitting outside that building with an umbrella when it rained. Let's just come to him in a, just a quiet moment of prayer before we come to this Lord's table and take communion together. Let's pray.